Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. First brand to have an impact on you. Uh, New York Yankees. How, how old were you? I remember being like, I just remember being a little kid and wanting to be the first female baseball player. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't know. There was something about watching the Yankees that was like you an still inspiration. still like baseball? I do. My kids now love the Yankees. Your kids play? Um, my daughter's a big softball player. Super. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Michelle Peluso, the SVP Digital Sales and Chief Marketing Officer of IBM, a company with a market cap of $132 billion, revenue of $80 billion, and 340,000 employees. Michelle has had an amazing career, which you will hear about. She started at the Wharton School at Penn, became the CEO of Travelocity, the CEO of Gilt. She's on the board of Nike. She was the chief marketing officer of Citi, and now she's the CMO of IBM. She talks a lot in this podcast about the importance of agile teams in building a world-class marketing capability and world-class marketing organization. You will hear wisdom and passion and what to do if you're a CMO, if you are persuaded by this and want to build an Agile team. Here's my conversation with Michelle Peluso. Well, Michelle, welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. Excited to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. I think for this podcast, we should make it a special two-hour edition <laughs> because we have so much to talk about. So are you ready for that? I'm ready. Can we go for two hours? I will tell you that I do nothing in more than 15-minute increments, but let's, let's see okay, where let's it goes. Okay, let's try. <laughs> well, the reason I say that we should make this a two-hour edition is you have the most incredible career. Well, thank you so much. And your career is only, if I think I'm right, about 24 years old. <laughs> so, And you're now in one of the top CMO positions in the world at IBM. So I want to talk about that later. But before we do that, I'd like to sort of ramble or rattle through your career path. And as I say, one of the jobs or positions you had, I want you to give me a word or a phrase sure. to describe that experience. So I'm going to start, go way back. And I'm going to start with the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Worldly. Uh, I think that was just the first time I, I, there were so many people from different walks of life and different countries, and uh, it was an incredible experience. And you grew up in upstate New York. I grew up in upstate, yeah. sort of small town It was a big New city York. experience, too. Yeah. yeah. So to live in Philly, to be exposed to so many, uh, so many different people and ideas was, was incredible. My dad's a Penn lawyer. He mm -hmm. graduated from Penn Law School years ago. University of Oxford, where you got a master's. Mm. Intellectual. <laughs> 
Um, you know, to go to a system where uh, the tutorial mode, where you read like, you know, 10 books on some topic, and then you, at the time, wrote a six, seven, eight-page essay, and you would bring that kind of handwritten essay with half a bottle of whiteout and scrawled notes to one of the, you know, leading professors in the world, and you would sit for an hour, sometimes two hours, and read your paper and talk about your thoughts. I mean, that was such a deeply intellectual experience um, and you studied what? You studied interesting topics. Yeah, like. philosophy, politics, and wow. economics. Penn was about the world, the community, Philadelphia, um, uh, you know, to study abroad. It was just, it was really about getting out into the world. Um, Oxford was a little bit of a, you know, this sort of incredible time to explore, you know, intellectual ideas and the mind and, uh, and of course, to to live in Britain, which yeah. was remarkable. Yeah, fantastic. So BCG, which I think was an early job. And by the way, my son is working in BCG this summer. He has a summer internship. He's Good in business him. school. Good for so him. BCG, tell me, word, phrase, short description of the experience. I mean, that was my that was my my MBA, really. You know, that was my. Um, my exposure to business at scale. My dad was an entrepreneur, so I always grew up with a strong sense of business. But that was, you know, what is the world of financial services look like? And what about healthcare? And what about, I lived in London for a while for BCG. So what is oh, what fantastic. is business like in Europe? Um, what is it like in North America? I mean, that, that was so like So who was a, your favorite client in BCG? MBA. It goes way back, I know. I loved... Um, you know, Pfizer was was mm. a really great client because it was the beginning of the genetic revolution and how is that going to change R&D? And, and of course, the first time that, that ads started surfacing about drugs that was allowed. So that was really interesting. But but from a pure leadership perspective, I worked on um, Seagram in London for I think it was about 11 months. Um, and that was deeply challenging to try to run a team uh, I, I was so young and, you know, I think I was the only woman on the case too. And and so that was like really interesting to learn how to motivate people because mm -hmm. usually when you're a consultant, you kind of come in, you present your results, you go back, you come in, you present. We were living together. This was a sort it's of a client, best, right? mm -hmm. you know, consultant. Uh, all of us were transported to London for like 11 months. So that was a really interesting way of thinking about, okay, even your best ideas you know, if, if it doesn't culturally fit with this organization and if Sally doesn't get along with John and they're just not going to do it. So that was like a great lesson in like pragmatic leadership. The real world MBA, right? Yeah. yeah. So then White House fellow in the Clinton White House in mm. the Department of Labor, correct? That's right. And then I became senior advisor to the Secretary of Labor. I took a political appointment um, during my White House fellowship. I mean, I would say... Um, friendships. Uh, I think people don't understand the White House Fellowship is the most extraordinary program in leadership. So you and, you know, some between 12 and 19 by law, young people, and I was very young. So the average age is kind of mid thirties. I was 26. Um, you, you live in Washington, you're assigned to a cabinet secretary as a sort of senior person. 
And um, but but you also we we got to make a list of like the hundred people we most wanted to meet in the world, and then the president invites them in for off the record sessions with us. So oh, it's man. this extraordinary thing. We went up wow. in the jungles of Noctavak. We did a full of accounting mission. We met with the Dalai Lama. I got to tango dance with Robin Williams on the beaches of of uh, outside San Francisco. Um, we did. Uh, we went up with the eighty second Airborne. Um, you know, so so you meet world leaders, CEOs, religious leaders, um, actors, actresses, musicians, artists, academics, doctors, scientists. So you went from there to be the co-founder and CEO of Site 59, which you mm-hmm. sold to Travelocity. Yeah. That must have been a rough transition. But tell me a, a bit about that experience. Yeah. Um, so I would say, I mean, that was such uh, such a source of sort of inspiration and um, fun. I mean, to start your own company, you know, to really know what it's like to be an entrepreneur, to raise money, to build a team, to um, to run something, and to do it successfully. I mean, we were at the beginning of the internet, right? So, and it was last minute travel. Deals, it was last right? minute yeah. travel. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, really perfected this idea of packaging, which now seems so common, but for us, this idea of dynamic packaging, air inventory, hotel inventory, really making vacation mm-hmm. packages real. Um, now so many of us shop that way, but but we were really the first to to figure that out, and um, to do that actually with friends. I started the company and I hired uh, five of my closest friends, which everybody said, "Well, that's such a horrible idea," but you know, all these decades later, we're, yeah, we're we're closer than ever before. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but it was also a time of like profound dig deep, right? We were a nine eleven company, so we were located two blocks off the towers, and the night of September tenth, we were up. I was up very, very late because we had several offers on the table to acquire our company. And uh, and then, of course, the next morning, the world changed. Um, and we were located uh, two blocks away, so people saw things they should never have seen, and our business plummeted. And so so all of a sudden, you have to lead in this environment of – um, you know, the team's traumatized, the business is crumbling, <laughs> your customers stranded everywhere. And you were everywhere. about to sell, and of course, all that fell apart. All that, you have to, well, we had to, we had to immediately stop all those conversations. Um, so, so, and and to our investors' credit, they let us stop those conversations. You know, they had the courage to say, well, wait a minute, you know, let's not panic. So what did you do that morning as a leader? You were the f- co-founder yeah, of this company. Yeah, I was founder, yeah. You have the world CEO, yeah. falling apart around you. Everyone's destroyed emotionally. What What did you do that morning? Well, I mean, you you compartmentalize and you work hard. So we had, we had to face sort of crisis on a few fronts. One is the employee front. You know, where were our employees? Tracking them down. What should they do? What about the ones that were in the office uh, everything outside was black and swirling. So should they stay? Should they go? Um, uh, so, so that was like sort of one big audience. And of course, as you remember, all of the modern modes of communication were right. down. Um, I remember AIM was like AOL instant message was like the one thing that seemed to still be up. So first of all, it was how do we solve for all of our employees? Make sure they're safe. Get them get them someplace safe. Secondly, we had a we had a sort of customer challenge, right? We had people who were flying and stranded all over the country. They couldn't get back. There were no flights. You know, what do you do about all your customers? People who had upcoming flight plans that day, the weeks ahead. So that was the second big piece. 
we had a, sort of an investor crisis and a board crisis, right? We went from burning 200000 a month with a couple million in the bank and being on the verge of an acquisition to burning a million a month with $2 million in the bank and, and really had to call all those acquisition conversations. So um, so we had that. And then, and then, of course, we had a supplier you know, challenge, right? We had hotel partners that were struggling all of a sudden and airline partners. So, so it was one of those things where you're just like, okay, great, let's roll up our sleeves and figure out like how do we solve you know, each of these things. I would say um, the defining spirit was uh, we were not going to let that be the end of our story. That was not how our story was going to end. And that created this really unbreakable bond between the team in terms of okay, we're here for each other, right? We were all grieving. We're here for each other. We're here for the community. We were still, once we finally got back into our office a couple weeks later, we were working in a very, very challenging community and environment. Um, we were here for our customers and we were going to we were gonna use the opportunity. We knew everybody else would be slow and we could be nimble and fast. We could innovate. We could do things differently. And so um, what ended up being a great success story, the sale of Site59 to Travelocity, um, uh, like like many startups, was a roller coaster. And that great success was born also out of our biggest challenge. Was that the most challenging time of your career, those yeah, two I, days? Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, of course, I've had many challenges mm -hmm. in my career. You know, we'll get to some of those. Acquisitions that you buy yeah. that don't work or, you know, the um, businesses that are, that are you know, decisions on personnel that you're so passionate about and you realize you're wrong. I mean, there's plenty of times you face challenges. But that one was a different level. One, probably because I was younger mm -hmm. and it was so raw, you know, yeah. and so human in its catastrophe. Um, I think that it's hard to think of another challenge that was that deep, you know, that profound. So you went on to become CEO eventually of Travelocity. I did. I did. They acquired us in March of 2002. We were profitable ahead of our 9-11 schedule, pre-9-11 schedule. Uh, and we were we were double the size, so we really did an amazing job of pivoting the company and, and going back even stronger. Uh, we were then acquired by Travelocity, and pretty quickly they asked if I'd become chief operating officer and then CEO. Mm -hmm. And then you went to be the consumer chief marketing officer at City. Yeah. And you brought the City bikes to New York. Yes. Yeah. So tell me about that learning experience. You went from really your own company, which was acquired by Travelocity, yeah. a relatively small company, to a big one. Well, you know, Travelocity was a lot about learning about Agile. We were, you know, just people were coming off the Wasatch so Mountains. So more about Agile that. Agile manifesto. teams, Agile way to work. Yeah, and that has been a huge stream. So before I get to City, I would just point that out. Uh, the Wasatch uh, Mountain Manifesto on Agile was written in 2002, and people came kind of streaming down from the mountains, and we were one of the first companies to say, something is right about this. Let's adopt Agile. So that was like a foray into Agile. And also with Travelocity, brand, the roaming gnome, mm -hmm. our, our customer I service guarantee, like sort of this idea of customer championship. Those were very foundational. I think moving to a place like City, those things became even you know more important or at a bigger scale. So City was going through the huge, of course, financial crisis. And our stock price had fallen to just below a dollar when I joined from $90. So you had the financial crisis, you had uh, our people were in branches, there were things like Occupy Wall Street happening. So it was a profound time of change for City. I knew that I, I really could not contribute to the risk and regulatory conversation. And mm -hmm. you know now I'm all of a sudden a member of this extraordinary senior team. And I was very clear, here's my limitations. Like this is the stuff I do not know. And there's brilliant minds here thinking about it. But 
I know how to get this company focused back on the consumer. And I know how to get us like you just sort of focus on improving the consumer experience. And if we bring that mirror in and what success is, um, you know, it, it'll give all of us a sense of mission and purpose again. Mm-hmm. So we launched uh, NPS, Net Promoter Score, which mm-hmm. I've become a sort of passionate uh, mm-hmm. advocate of over time. And uh, and we did things like bring City Bike to really reconnect with the consumer in meaningful ways uh, in their lives. And so, and then we brought Agile to City and, and you know, more at scale as well. So what kind of CMO were you at City? I mean, you said you you brought a net promoter data score, driven, data driven, consumer driven, mm-hmm. agile driven, uh, digital experience, digital innovator. I would say um, those would probably be my hallmarks. You know, agile, data driven, customer driven, and sort of digital innovation. Mm-hmm. And you went from there then to Gilt, yes, and you became CEO of Gilt. Mm-hmm. And at a very hot time for that company, right? Yeah, well, I had been on the board, so I knew the okay. goods and, and, the, and the bad. <laughs> okay, very good. So why did you make that decision? Yeah. And you went from CMO to CEO. What was that transition like? And what was that, how did that experience help shape you as a leader? Yeah, well, I've gone back and forth in this sort of CEO role, yeah. CMO role. And I think I was itching to do something smaller again. The board of Guild had been asking me to run it for a while. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to do to leave City. Um, and, but then I hit the point after four years where I was like, okay, I can, I can think about, you know, going and doing something a bit smaller again. And I also felt like I owed it to guilt to help get us to an outcome, you know, get us to sort of a, a good landing spot. Um, guilt was so much fun. As you and can you were imagine. there like six years, right? Well, that was from when I was board member board, all, the okay, way through, all the way but through. I was CEO for three, three okay. um, before we sold to, yep. to Hudson Bay. I think that, um, First of all, it's just a ton of fun. Fashion's a lot of fun, you know, and, and anytime you're pioneering a category, it's, mm-hmm. you know, bringing like high-end fashion online. Um, it's a crazy business model. You know, the idea that you sell a thousand things and you search engine optimize them all, shoot them, write about them, describe them, You've style be them. Agile. Yeah. And then they're gone the next day. Mm-hmm. So all that you, everything we knew about search engines and social sites and mobile, like we had to figure out, you know, new ways of doing things. So, um, incredible lesson in sort of creativity and data together, marrying art and science, um, an incredible lesson, I think, in in agility, a different, even a different kind of pace of agility. Um, and then we sold to Hudson Bay. And, you know, uh, it was a roller coaster. It was, um, uh, you know, there were times when we thought guilt would be sort of the biggest thing ever. And then there were times when department stores and, and retailers started catching on and really doing their own discounting, which really challenged the guilt business model. But in the end, I think we found a really um, smart and effective home and a successful home for, for you know, sort of the concept, the teams, and, and at, you know, it's still a very high value, a quarter of a billion dollars. Sure. So you're a board member of Nike. Yes. And you've been on the board how long? I've been in the board for over five years now, I think. Yeah, so you've yeah. seen quite, uh, I mean, they, their business is hot. Yes, yeah. They, they're one of the few brands that I think, what are they, 40 years old now? Yeah. Who've just stayed yeah. interesting, relevant, trendy mm. for decades. Yes. So. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. absolutely. So what have you learned there? How has that shaped you as a leader? You know, I, I think there's three things I always think about when I think about the Nike brand. One is... There's such authenticity. You know, they they exist to inspire and help the performance of every athlete with an asterisk, which means if you have a body or an athlete. Mm-hmm. So there's such deep authenticity about what the brand stands for. They're not 
chasing trends and fads. They understand the core of the brand. Secondly, um, there's tremendous courage at that company. You know, they are they are audacious. They are bold. They are willing to 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 step out and take risk. I think that comes from Phil, and has been um, driven throughout the culture. Uh, Mark is an incredible CEO. So I think there's just a great audacity and courage about the brand. Um, but the third thing, which sometimes I, I think the in some ways the secret sauce, which I believe often comes uh, or doesn't often come with audacity is humility. You know, they, I don't know, I, I think it's because they think, you know, that sort of the journey is always forward. There's this humility about the leadership and the team and um, this constant desire to take lessons and improve. So those three things, I think, make the Nike brand stand out um, time and time again, which is a great thing because I have a nine and 10-year-old who are sort of Nike obsessed right now. <laughs> <laughs> they love that you're on that board. Yes. No, I, I read Shoe Guy when it first came shoe out. Shoe Dog, yeah. Shoe Dog, Shoe Dog, Shoe Guy, Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog it is. It was just a great book. It's incredible. You know, and I- A lot of vulnerability. Honest, and you, and you can humble, see all those three things. Persistent. You can see those three things. You can see like a, a vision and an authentic sort of sense of purpose. You can see courage and patience. You know, they didn't make money for the longest time, yeah. really. But you can see humility too yeah. and vulnerability. Yeah. I went out to Nike's headquarters when I was CMO at PNG. I asked them if I could come out and film a webcast there mm. and share it with our employees about purpose. Yeah. And about culture and mm. about humility and about consumer focus and about the environment. Mm -hmm. It's such an inspiring place to work. Yeah. You know, so. It's a, it's a remarkable brand. Yeah. And then CMO, SVP of IBM. We finally get there. Yeah, right. We finally get there. We're talking <laughs> I feel like I'm like 75 so, right now. <laughs> no, yeah. only 24 years. So, but a remarkable career run. And you obviously are comfortable with change mm. and crisis mm -hmm. and innovation. <laughs> so great preparation for CMO, right? <laughs> so you come into IBM and, um, you know, why did you make that decision? I love the intersection of technology and and people, right? And I love, I actually really like challenging times and and I love learning and uh, and I love being inspired by people who I think are smarter and better than I am. I had known Ginny for a while and she had wanted me to come for a while and I kept saying, oh, I'd be terrible. I'm a B2C person through and through. Um, but she, you know, over time is, is incredibly persistent and um, uh, and I think the, the idea that I would be able to uh, to lead such an iconic brand that was in the middle of so much transformation um, with a team of people that is arguably one of the smartest and also sort of, frankly, humble teams of people, you know, the sort of business world has ever seen. Um, and I was just struck by that just uh, Saturday, actually, as I was remembering, we've, of course, celebrated Apollo 11. Well, there were 4,000 IBMers who made Apollo 11 possible, and actually many of them in that room on that day. And, um, you know, this this company that kind of stands for big, audacious things but sort of pays it forward, there's not a lot of 108-year-old technology companies that have reinvented themselves as many times as IBM has um, and and also the opportunity to work uh, at a company with a sense of purpose. So talk about purpose like things mm -hmm. like changing society. But on topics like inclusion, you know, where IBM has uh, just been a groundbreaker um, always. And that really spoke to me. Mm -hmm. So how do you explain IBM these days to your kids? Yeah. You have a what, nine and 10 year old. I do. So what do you, how do you describe the company to them? I do. I think that most of 
most of the change in the way they're seeing the world work. Um, when they think about things like artificial intelligence or they think about how to get food to their table in a safe way, or they think about how to have an experience that is unlike any other at a retail store. Um, so much of that, IBM's technology and people are behind the scenes. So, um, uh, you know, I explain it to them like I explain it to anybody in the experiences we provide for our clients, in the ways we make society better, in the um, in the passion we have relentlessly for sort of a world that that um, uh, will be better. So, you know, there's just so many stories that you can bring to life. And of course, they love the idea of Watson. They want Watson to do all their homework and all the rest of it. So that <laughs> the helps. Side benefit, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so you're, um, you're maybe the first CMO at IBM who came from the outside. Yeah. And I've known previous CMOs at IBM, and I've always had the greatest respect for them and fondness, actually. So was that a risk for them? Was it a risk for you? How did you manage coming yeah. in at a senior level? I think it I mean, was what? a big risk, but you know, I had a huge advantage and that was John Awada. Mm. And uh, John Awada was the previous yeah. CMO and an incredible leader um, and still one of my best thought partners. And when I came in, um, I actually, I remember having this conversation with Ginny and, and John, I was like, I should report to John for a while. And Ginny, you know, had asked me about that and, and how much would it matter if I report to her or John. And I actually felt like it'd be a gift to report to John at the outset, right? To to really deeply learn all there was to learn um, from such an incredible leader. And now I was still on Ginny's staff and all these other things. So I still was able to make sure I really had a broader voice at the table. I've always been, frankly, as much of a business person as I am a CMO. Um, but John is uh, and was an incredibly gracious um, partner for me in my entry to IBM. Um, he gave me plenty of room, um, but he has, anyone who knows John, um, so much wisdom and thoughtfulness and where I can like rush into action, you know, without thinking sometimes, John's like the best person to kind of slow you down and, and really think deeply about a topic and make your own course of action so much better. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So you've been there almost three years. That's right. So describe to me, John was very helpful in your onboarding, but for CMOs listening to our podcast, those who are coming in from the outside to a new company, yeah, and you were making a big transition, right? Yeah. And so what could they learn from how you, you obviously listened, you learned from some of the people that had been there, like John, like Ginny, but what did you do in your first three months to get off to a, a good start as a new CMO in a large changing enterprise? Yeah. Fall in love fast. Mm. I think it's, you know, when you're coming from the outside, 
if people sense that you aren't developing an affinity for the people, the culture, et cetera, that rankles, you know, because I'm I'm a very ambitious change agent, for better or for worse. It's who I am. I don't, you know, sort of I, I um I'm more sort of break glass and transform than mm-hmm. I am increment my way. Um and that's always been the case. And I think that duality of people could tell I was in love with the IBMer and that I had a huge amount of respect for what the company was trying to do and that I was I needed to and passionately wanted to learn. But at the same time, I had a strong point of view about the future of marketing um, and uh, and the future of customer experience and the future of sort of uh, digital experience. And I was going to be really aggressive and bold in our agenda on that front. I think that duality helped, I think, because people could sense it's coming from a good spot, you know, and she's willing to listen. And, and, um, and I think that um, maybe perhaps more than anything else, is a recipe for me as I think about entering new places. Mm-hmm. When you came in, um, this is a tough, leading change is hard, right? Mm-hmm. And you like that. You're good at it. You've done it in a lot of different organizations. You're doing it on IBM. How do you, how do, how do you do that? How do you bring people along with you? Change is hard for so many people. So what's your special gift in leading change? What could others learn from you? Um, an inspiring vision of what's on the other side. Um, and that has to be true uh, sort of at a big picture level, but it has to be true for the person. And I'll, I can give you an example. I can talk through a big change we had that was very, very difficult. But an inspiring vision of what lays on the other side, um, persistence and consistency of message. Mm-hmm. I think it's so easy for sometimes people are like, I'm on this point, then I'm on that point, then I'm on this point. You know, And I think teams need... Um, Teams need consistency of expectation. Like what, you know, what are the, where are we headed? And is this, are we going to be, are we going to stay the course? Is this really going to be what matters? Or is this kind of a fad? Transparency of data and outcomes. I think that's a big part of my, um, my path. So clarity and what success looks like. Yeah. And and a lot of transparency on, you guys see all the data I see, you know, you tell me. And um, uh, I would say, agility and course correction. So setting up mechanisms that really let you get a sense of when you need to, you know, you're not on track, you need to shift and a humility about being willing to course correct. Um, Some combination of those things. Mm -hmm. So Michelle, tell me what marketing is at IBM. What are the pillars? And then I'd like to hear about what you do. Yeah. What does a CMO at IBM do? And I know you have, you're a VP of digital sales too. Right, I'm in commercial and digital sales. Yeah. Too. yeah. So just, just give us an idea. Marketing is so different at different companies. That's kind of the one quirky thing about our discipline. Yeah. So I'd just like you to unpack that for me a bit for our listeners. What's marketing at IBM and what does Michelle do? Yeah. So marketing at IBM is actually pretty simple. It is, you know, our job is to be the most customer-oriented, outcomes-obsessed, agile team on the planet. That's that's really what we aim for. Um, We have to understand our clients and customers better than anybody in the company. And that's not just the people who buy, but all the people who influence them. We have to be really data and creative driven to get outcomes, which means pipeline, win revenue, expansion, Mm -hmm. all the rest. Um, And we work completely agile. We're the first company at scale to do agile marketing as a discipline, not as a word, not as an adjective, but we've 
the, the science of Agile as a discipline were, I believe, the first company of our scale and scope to be Agile in marketing. So that's, that's what we Do you think that's your greatest achievement so far in the three years? I think we have brought a hu- I think all three. I mean, I think we've brought a huge amount of focus on sort of the customer experience. We implemented MPS, and so I lead that effort for the company, as well as lots of other ways to gather information. But um, we've made huge strides. I mean, you know, uh, 800 or so thousand pieces of feedback now from our clients directly and people who use our software, changing the way we develop, the way we work, the way we do digital experiences, the way we market. So that's been a big shift for us. Um Outcomes driven, we are, you know, way more data scientists leaning than mm-hmm. we were um, and connecting the dots between the brand and sort of creative ideas, which matter more than ever, but like really rooted in data science and analytics. Um, and then, of course, our transformation to agile. Mm-hmm. I would say all three. You know, the the thing is you can't do one without the other. Agile without a sense of outcome orientation isn't doesn't work, right? And agile without a sense of being customer-centric doesn't really work. Um, equally... You know, outcomes orientation, if you're not agile, means great, you have this data, but you, you can't move and change fast enough to make a difference. So yeah. in some ways, those three things, at least for us, are very interconnected. So what's a typical day for you? There, I know there is no typical day, but give me a sense of kind of what you focus on. Uh, the fun thing is there is no typical day, but but um, most of my days have some combination of being with agile teams and stand-ups or retrospectives, and and that's just fun and inspiring, right? What are what are teams learning? What are they doing? How can I you know participate in a stand-up or a retrospective? So for our listeners, advice. a stand-up is. So agile teams are small, self-empowered teams. The way marketing has traditionally been run, just like a lot of functions, we have these big silos. We have our brand people and our creative people. We have our media people. We have our, you know, our, our product marketers. We have our content marketers, our events people, our data mm-hmm. scientists. And those are big vertical stacks. And you grow up in one of those vertical stacks. Right. Um, and if you're lucky, you know, you may move from sort of stack to stack. Um, Agile blows that all up. And it says, no, 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 every team is based on a mission, maybe selling a certain offering, connecting with a certain customer base, doing something in a geo. Uh, but there are eight to 10 cross-functional people. They they sit together. They work together. So on an Agile team, you might have the creative person, the product marketer, the data scientist, the search engine expert. The, and every Agile team may have slightly different ingredients based on what they're, they're going at. Um, you sit together and you practice agile. So you are thinking about your time, you're, you're, you're planning everything in sort of one to two week sprints. Um, you have a huge amount of accountability to each other. Uh, you're really daily optimizing. You do things like stand-ups every morning to see from what you said you were going to do yesterday. Did you guys get it done? What are the barriers? What are you working on today? So daily stand-up. Daily stand-ups. You do retrospectives at the end of sprints to really say, okay, what went well? What would we do better? What are we going to change? So it's an idea. It really takes defensiveness away because as a core principle, you always have to get better. So as a core principle, you're spending time every week or two weeks saying, great, what could we have done better? What could we have done differently? What are we going to do? What are we going to change so we're even more effective in the next sprint? Um, And that, I think, is a very powerful way of making prioritization real because um, they have to. They have two weeks. They have to prioritize. Uh, it's a very real way of making outcome-centric behavior because you're you're looking and analyzing the data. And it's a hugely good way, I think, to, to make sort of learning and humility at the core of how the team works. Mm-hmm. So in any given day, how many Agile teams do you have working? Well, we have uh, in our Agile marketing squads in IBM, we have about 300 or so sort of 
core agile teams. Um, and each of those teams has, call it roughly 10 or so people on it. So that's about 3,000 of our marketers are in mm -hmm. agile squads. Um, and then we have, have a total marketing staff of over 4,000, just over 4,000. So a good so percentage we, are working the, in the agile yeah, teams. 75%, yeah, 75%, right? Uh, and then we have some teams that span agile teams. So mm -hmm. they the way they work is likely agile, but they're not dedicated to a agile team. For instance, we have some of our researchers have to research many, many topics. They wouldn't be devoted to an agile team. But when an agile team has research needs, that research team is going to work in an agile fashion with that mm -hmm. with that team. So why wouldn't every marketing department in every company around the world be agile? I don't know. But how many are? I mean, a very small I agree. percentage. I agree. It's it's hard work getting there. Um, and I'll you know. So what's your learning in t taking the transition? Well, we had it even harder in some ways because we were not sitting in offices together when I inherited uh, marketing. In the U.S., about 70, uh, 70 plus percent of our people were working from home, so um, which wow. is kind of right, uh, sort of a shocking number. So we were uh, actually twenty six hundred people in about eighteen hundred locations, believe it or not. And so we had it tougher than most because we had to make a decision as a team to say, okay, we're going to move people back to uh, core offices. So we we picked six in the U.S. We invested hugely in modernizing them and making them agile facilities and in breaking down sort of traditional offices and, and putting things out in the open. Um, so we had a big leap we had to make. Um, and that was very traumatic for our people, understandably. Mm -hmm. And that's why I go back to that change management. We had to paint what is the vision? What is the vision? And to me, it was always very clear. You will be the most you know, recruitable per marketer on the planet because if you master come with us and do this and if you don't we'll find another job for you and ibm will we'll certainly try hard um or, or we'll help you as you transition mm -hmm. to another company but if you do come and you move and or start showing up at the office and you get rid of your posh office and you sit with a team of people mm -hmm. and you know we will train you fully in agile we did six months of dedicated training um, we will we will go we'll be innovators and pioneers on this together. Was there a role model for you in this? A company or a leader that's helped you, or were you kind of inventing it? I, I know there's knew, a lot of academic. I know Agile well. Yeah. I mean, growing up at Travelocity, we were yeah. one of the first companies to go Agile. At Gilt, we had to be Agile. I helped bring Agile to City, but I had never done Agile uh, for at this, marketing. You know, yeah. for marketing, and it did require some big things. So some of the things that are very different. How do you work with the agency? You know, uh, how do you think about the agency model? They so you had a lot well. of work. That's right. But but getting there is is a challenge. For 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 true agile teams, they're often cross discipline. So when you think about an agile team at Gilt, um, you know, it's not just marketing. They're engineers and right. sales and right. merch and um, and ops. When you're at a company of the scale and complexity of an IBM, where we have you know 350 plus thousand people. You know the 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 agile team are marketers. So then the next big question is, if you think about that as a gear moving quickly, how does that gear connect with sales? How does that get, connect with you know product? How does that gear connect with finance? So so we really had to think about those points of intersection with the other teams, some of whom were agile, some of whom are not, um, and make sure we we had a social contract how we work with other teams. Um, we had to push the agencies really hard, our main agencies, to change the way they work. Um, and, you know, for for some people, uh, this was a hard journey. Um, middle management doesn't do well in an agile environment in general. Um, because if you think about it, we all grew up in a structure, a hierarchical structure, where when you get to that level, you know, you're, you're, there's a lot of psychological reward. You're, in some ways, the information sharp of the company, right? Like, you, you take from what's on high, and you tell your teams, you take from what's below, and you, tell, you, you sort of relay it up. 
you call the staff meetings, you call the one-on-ones. Like there's a lot of that that we all grew up with. And when you when you go agile and say, no, no, these are self-empowered teams, the whole point is to try to push accountability and decision making down. And you we, you just don't need as much middle management. You don't need that layer. And by the way, if you are that person, you're going to their stand-ups. You're not, you know, calling the shots. So that that's a rough transition. So so those are some of the things that figuring that out early as we were designing the model thinking through how the social contract between our Agile team and other teams in the company, and then figuring out the agency model. Those were three, uh, three things that we had to really think differently about as we, as we brought Agile to marketing. So what, what do you think the greatest challenges are as you look forward? Is it, is it um, keeping it going? Is it the rest of the company? Is it recruiting? Yeah, no, I actually think we have a really strong recruiting value prop now. So mm-hmm. if people are interested, they should drop us a line. Um, uh, I think it's a combination of people want increasingly want to work for a company with values. And, um, and when you can combine a high-tech company that's at the cutting edge of things like AI and quantum and blockchain with a company that has a real deep sense of purpose and values – on things like data rights and inclusion. And, you know, I think that's a pretty powerful place for people to be. And then if you combine that with a marketing value proposition of you're going to be, you know, you're going to work in Agile, you're going to be sort of a data scientist and creative together. You're, that's a pretty strong value prop. Are people happier working now? Oh, oh, by far. We we do our engagement surveys, right? And by the way, we plummeted as we went through the change, as you might expect. and, And now we're sort of stronger than ever. Our outcomes are better than ever. The return on every dollar we spend is much stronger. NPS is up significantly. So I think that the the data is pretty clear that this was the right move for us, but not without a lot of pain and learnings along the way. Um, what I think about and I worry about more now um, is, you know, we live in a, in a very consumer-driven world and um, where everyone is used to certain devices in their home or in their car and that as they go into their professional lives, that's how they're making decisions. So when we IBM sit behind so many things as opposed to sort of front mm-hmm. and center, um, how do we make sure we're telling the IBM story in a way that really resonates with um, with the broadest audience possible? Now, thankfully, we have things like the Weather App, which is an IBM company to do yeah. to do some of that work. But it's why storytelling about Watson or storytelling about, you know, the kinds of things that we do behind the scenes is so, you know, critically important. Mm-hmm. When I was at P&G years ago, we really loved what you did on purpose, mm-hmm. the Smarter Planet work. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just your work was so inspiring. It was visionary. Yeah. You wanted to be a part of it. So we studied what you did. So I think you were a pioneer in this concept of brand purpose and bringing it to life across your enterprise. So what's the status of that now at IBM? What's yeah. brand purpose now at IBM? Well, some of that work in Smarter Planet um, uh, was so good because it resonated with who IBM actually is. You know, it was it was one of those things where the authenticity of IBM and the zeitgeist of the moment connected. Um, and so as we think now, you know, our mission about let's put smart to work, we are uh, we are sort of unabashed in pulling from the strength of that authenticity from Smarter Planet. Um, but we're also recognizing a time when, you know, let's is really important. You know, it's us and our clients together. We don't come in with the solutions anymore. This is a show me world, yeah, you yeah. know, um, uh, putting things to work, you know, that that idea of scale and benefit, you know, is critical. But I, I think the the purpose of IBM has to be the following three things. It's always being at the forefront of the most innovative technology so we can help our clients determine what's best. 
Um, it's why we're the, you know, we have more patents than anybody else every year. Secondly, it's always about industry expertise um, that we need to understand how the underbelly of some of these industries work so that real change can happen. It's not a proof of concept. It's how do you really make AI, for instance, reshape the way you do HR, the way you do marketing. Um, but third thing, and perhaps it's most important, is this, this, this sense of trust and responsibility that we have to help shepherd in all this new technology era after era with responsibility. It's why we're so passionate about things like skills and all the work. I mean, P-TECH being one example, um, a program we pioneered that is a six-year program with states and local governments now entered its 14th country pipeline of 150,000 young people. Um, crazy success rates from the schools we've had. Um, and, and many of them work. They, they're, they're incredible schools because you have a six-year program, equivalent of four-year high school to your associate's mm -hmm. degree, for STEM, um, often in some of the toughest neighborhoods, by the way, um, and you're interning throughout. So in my team, we've got great P-TECH students who, you know, intern with us for the six years and then often get a job at IBM. So pioneer inclusion, another topic that is core as we think about trust and responsibility. You cannot usher AI into the world if you're not really, really thoughtful about who's training, you know, the AI. Mm -hmm. um, uh, data and privacy, another yeah. massive topic right now. We've had principles about data and privacy that we adhere to, you know, and, and that's core of who we are. Mm -hmm. It's not an afterthought. Yeah. Well, it's, a very, it's always been, and, and more than ever, it's an important yeah. brand purpose for the world. Yeah. So how do you know you're making progress on it? Yeah. Um, well, I think the the... The good thing about the great thing about IBM, the good thing about IBM is these things we're talking about are our DNA. We're not just saying, oh my gosh, in an era of Me Too, we have to have a point of view on inclusion. Mm -hmm. We wrote, our, our CEO, former CEO, wrote policy letter number four in, in the 1950s, a decade ahead of the Civil Rights Act, saying that we would always be a company that hired irrespective of race and gender and orientation and all these other things. So, you know, when you know that is your company's DNA, you are driven to raise the bar. It's also why I run the Women's Initiative for all of IBM. Um, and I've been publishing on this lately, things I think we need to do as society and as companies to actually make faster progress. So mm -hmm. when you come from a brand that has authenticity about values data, privacy, skills, inclusion, yeah. um, it's a lot easier to think about how do you raise the bar and how do you measure success than if you're somebody who's coming at these things as an afterthought. Well, part of your equity is, I mean, you help shape the so-called modern corporation. Yeah. And you need, that's, that's who you are, it's where mm. you come from, you need to continue to era do that. Era after era. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely, it's never static. Right? Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So you work with Ginny Rometty. I do. Who I've admired from a distance for a long time. So I just admire her up close. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, good for you. So how do you, uh, how, did, how do you have a, what's your relationship like with her? I mean, it's so important for CMOs yeah. and CEOs to trust each other, 
to 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 be a team. Yeah. So, what's your lessons in becoming, you know, a great team? What, well, she's, she's what, you remarkable. see her often. Do you, what do you talk about time. with her? I mean, we we are together a lot, actually, and the senior team is together a lot. Um, and she's very fast on texting and all sorts of other things. It's, um, but but I'll tell you how she won me over to come to IBM because I actually think it speaks volumes about her and the relationship we've been able to forge. Uh, I had met with her a few times and I kept saying, look, I'd be terrible. I'd be like, you'd love me for like five minutes. Then you'd <laughs> want to fire me. I'm a B2C person. And and she had a lot of great intellectual arguments about why the world was moving to B2I. And I, was all, I always walked away from our meetings so blown away with her intelligence um, and her persistence and her love of IBM. So B2I. That was clear. Business to individual, okay. right? Um, I've heard B to H, business yes, to humans. Yes. So same Sorry, idea. Thank you. Same idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I always walked away sort of blown away with her intelligence and her uh, her grit and her persistence. And and how could I not be inspired by the fact that she's a woman CEO of, you know, one of the sort of most important companies in the world. Um, but I remember, but what I really remember and the reason I decided to join, I was with her for lunch one day and uh, right as I was leaving, she was like, wait, wait, wait. I have a present for Colonaden and my two kids. And she handed me this box of, you know, freshly baked, super gooey oh. chocolate chip cookies. And she said, she you know, my I heart had, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She said, you know, I had the, um, I had somebody pull these together for you. They're really like the world's best and they're really, truly right out of the oven. And I remember going home that night and, uh, and I gave the, the cookies to my kids and, you know, um, oh, they've got man. chocolate all over their face and it's like, you know, dripping. And I'm like, you guys, I'm going to take a quick video of you guys. You have to thank Jenny. And they wrote, they said this off the cuff. They, they talked, you know, quick thank you. And they also talked about Watson in this video. And I texted her my very fast thank you video from the kids. And she immediately came right back at me. And I was like, all right, all right. You know, here I, I've had the great privilege of working with incredible leaders and I've met presidents and world leaders and actors and actresses. And I mean, I've had an incredible career. Um, but the people that inspire me most from a leadership perspective are the people who have at the top of their game intellectually and sort of leadership wise, but also have like a sort of deep and resonant humanity. Um, because for me, at least, that's the leader I want to be. But also, I can't do my best work if I'm not a great mom. It just won't happen. Um, so someone who recognizes that, and I had that with a previous leader, Manuel Medina Mora at City, uh, and I can wax poetic about Manuel, um, who is such a huge inspiration to me. You know, to have somebody who can say, Michelle, we want you to come here and be a ferocious change agent and help us, you know, and 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 all those things that are core to who you are as a professional. But we also recognize and know that, you know, you are a mom and um and you're on the boards and you're a community member and I'm also a class mom that and we want that whole Michelle. Um that is very inspiring. That's when I knew I joined. So how does the whole Michelle do it? Uh, not so well. No, <laughs> no, you obviously do. No, but I mean, we get questions all the time I, I on this podcast very, about balance or, yeah, or blending. Yeah, I don't talk about any of that. I don't talk about any of that. Well, I think I, I have just a couple of very simple things I would say. Um, number one, I am who I am and everybody knows who I am. And it's clear I'm, I don't try to hide that. I don't, I've always picked places where I could be who I am, right? Which has to be, I'm a mom and I'm a, and I work. Um, so uh, I've had the privilege in my career, and I recognize not everybody has this, but to to really prioritize picking places where I knew I could be who I am. And I know not every woman, especially, has that option. 
Um, so, so one, I, I recognize that's a huge privilege, but it's been a gift for me to be able to be myself and authentic and not feel like I have to, you know, be sort of one person at work and another person at home. Um, but the second thing is I am ruthless with my time. Um, I joked about 15 minute increments, but one of the reasons I'm so passionate about Agile is because I am, I am ferocious about how I prioritize my time and I, uh, I just believe it's it's really important. I believe that most of us sort of waste a lot of time in the corporate world. You know, too many people in meetings, things sure. that go on forever, decisions that don't get made, meetings that didn't have to happen, you know. And if you push decision-making down and you really self-empower teams in an agile environment and before anything's on my calendar, you know, people have to go through an exercise to say, like, what is the point? What do we want to get out? And I do think most things that are on your calendar for an hour can be done in 25 minutes. And I think most things that are on your calendar for 30 minutes can be done in 15. Um, and, you know, I pack a lot in, but I do leave the office every day at 530 and I'm home for dinner and homework and bedtime rituals. And then I work again at night. So I work when the kids go to bed. So I think um, when I'm on long plane rides, I go back. I always have my sense of like, what's most important this quarter in life? Like, what do I really want to accomplish this quarter? And um, when I'm on long plane rides, I'll go back and I'll do a retrospective of my calendar. Did Does the way I use my time align with what I said the most important things were? Do you use technology to analyze your time in your calendar or it's I more do, of a visual? I do, but sometimes I just like it printed out, you know, and, and, and um I'm obviously a very high-tech person, and, and anyone who knows me knows I, I don't store any paper. I don't have any paper. But there are some things I need to have printed, and I need to kind of go back and forth and look at things. And um, and that's one of the things sometimes, just printing my calendar for a quarter and saying, did my time align, and what adjustments do I want to make? I don't need to have those one-on-ones just because they're on the calendar. You know, I, I, So you sort of do a retroactive on your calendar. Yeah, retrospective on my yeah. calendar. You know, what would I change? I don't need to be involved in yeah. certain steering committees or – if I do, I think we should change the way they're done. Or actually, this person can lead this effort. They, I'm not adding any value. You know, I'm not helping them. Um, or I'm not spending enough time on these other things. So I have to figure out how to carve out time for these. I'm reacting to too many things. I think the Alexis Secretary Alexis Herman um, once told me this, and I thought it was such a brilliant thing. Most of us define success as sort of keeping the pots, the lids, and all the pots of boiling water. You know, and we kind of just like okay, that didn't boil over today, nor did that, 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 that. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, you're sort of mm-hmm. juggling those lids and all the water's boiling and you feel good about yourself because nothing boiled over. Um, I think if you really want a bold agenda and you want to set a course for change and you want to really make an impact in an area, um, someone else has to do that work. You know, someone else has to, you cannot spend your entire day making sure that Watching pots the don't pots, boil over. Right. Yeah. Right. And you sound like you'd like some pots to boil, boil over, right? Well, if a couple <laughs> so do, are. that's fine. But, some, but I also think like, you know, there are plenty of teams who are doing yeah. great work and they really don't So what's don't an average meeting for you? 15, 20 minutes? Yeah. yeah. Maybe 30. Um, but, uh, but, but I would say we are very clear about who's, I mean, I don't, I don't love the idea of passengers. I don't love the idea of like, you know, this, there's, there's four people who need to make a decision, but there's. 42 people on the call, you yeah. know, all of whom yeah. are multitasking and doing email or, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really big on like those of us who have our sleeves rolled up doing the work, let's mm-hmm. get together. Um, that's kind of what a retrospective or a daily stand-up does. Um, 
I'm big on being thoughtful about what's the point. Why are we getting together? Like mm-hmm. what sure. what obstacles do you have that I can actually help you with? You know, um, I have a small team that really does an amazing job of kind of managing how I spend my time and thinking about that. And then, of course, you just have to leave time for serendipity too, right? Um, walking the halls, and so we we schedule that. You know, a time where you're just like authentically with teams and getting a sense and and one-on-one time. But when it's scheduled meetings... With an objective. Yeah. Right? It's got to have an objective. It's got to be the right people in the room. Yeah. We really need to be focused when we're there. I find at least, and maybe it's just my own sort of uh, a version of ADD, but when a meeting is like three or four hours long, you know... Everyone I'm, burns out. I'm multitasking. Yeah. I'm not yeah. really paying attention. That's yeah. a terrible thing to admit, but it's true. And so I really try to, you know get us to the point. And I'd rather do a half an hour, make some decisions. And then if we need to follow up, do that. Yeah. Super. Well, I want to end, unfortunately, it's not going to be two hours, right? <laughs> but I want to end this wonderful discussion with a lightning round. Yeah, sure. Okay? Go for it. First ad you remember. I would have to say, I bet you it was probably some of the Apple ads. Mm. Um, uh, there were just some groundbreaking ads. Certainly some of the Nike ads were iconic. I, I, one of those brands, mm-hmm. I would say. Leader who has been most influential in your career track on business? My dad. Um, huge source of inspiration. But but the thing is, um, because he was an entrepreneur and he was so obsessed with his team and with his clients, and that had such a pervasive sort of influence. And he was on an me. engineer, correct? He was an engineer, yeah, engineering firm. But he but he was CEO of the firm. Um uh, but I would, but you know, Manuel Medina Mora, um, the CEO of of Consumer for Citigroup. Uh, such a wise, thoughtful, caring leader. Um, he was incredible. Sam Gilland, uh, who was CEO of Sabre when I was CEO of Travelocity. Of course, Ginny. Sandy Moose, who was the sort of BCG leader mm-hmm. of the East Coast and iconic for really doing something no other woman had done, you know, just sort of leading this big consulting practice. So I've grown Lots up- Lots of great mentors. Yeah, I've grown up with incredible great mentors. List. Jerry Roach, chairman of Hijack and Struggles. He passed away just recently, but you know he'd call me out of the blue. Uh, really, since I was a kid, uh, he had heard about me somehow, and when I was just starting out my career, I think when I was in Washington, and from thereafter, you know, he'd call me every two or three months to just check in and push me in a direction or invite me to Four Seasons for lunch. And so, yeah, I mean, I have great mentors too. We're so blessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also think you find mentors every day. You know, yeah, you I think do. like you, you your daily life. Yeah, you're just sitting with the team, and you see them. You see somebody yeah. do something really profound, and you think about how that affects yep. you. So I, We're I learning often, all the time. Yeah. So favorite marketing campaign now. Favorite marketing campaign now. I would say this different. I would say the women's U.S. soccer team. Oh yeah. And it's not yeah. like a marketing it's campaign like a movement. per se, yeah. but it is a movement yeah. and it is a campaign. And yeah. people like Nike are helping to fuel it, but with with great ads. But but it's actually those women soccer players that I think are showing up and and pushing all of us to say it doesn't have to be like this and it shouldn't be like this. Right. What do you read and listen to every day? Anything? I do read a lot. Um, I, I read I read the news in the morning, and I have tried really hard um, with, to. to to sort of whether it's the Times or or sort of uh, New York Public Radio, which might be my go-to, mm-hmm. to shake that up by reading some stories from a totally different point of view. On and I usually use Apple News to kind mm-hmm. of curate yeah, um, some different stories because we get in our bubble. I get in my bubble mm-hmm. too much, and that that's not what I want actually for my own intellectual life. Recent book you've read that's been interesting. Oh, I'm always reading. Um, I 
I read a lot of fiction actually, but but I'm also always inspired by like really great biographies, you know, and um, Doris Kearns Goodwin is always sort of a genius and uh, and painting very human pictures of leaders and their path to leadership. So uh, I was I'm just finishing up Michelle Obama's book, which is mm-hmm. actually really great too. So I'm I'm you know I don't go to bed at night without you know sort of great ritual resetting mm-hmm. the day and recasting it in some great work of fiction. Favorite hobby? Uh, uh, children. I mean, I you know I I think. Um, being a mom when you can when you can really be in that moment and in the flow of what it's like to be a kid, you know, and to just I'm I'm happy to be on the floor, you know, playing and that I would say um, letter writing. I write letters to my kids mm. and they get it. They they'll get their box when they're eighteen. Oh, so wow. when they go to college, they'll each get their box. Um, so I like kind of codifying things and letters to them and then they each have a box oh, high up in their closet. Love that. Series you're watching now. Netflix, Amazon Prime. Oh, I'm terrible. That Hulu. is the one thing I never do. I you really don't do just don't watch TV. Yeah. I, I mean okay. I've loved, you know, like I love billions, I would say. That's yeah, been fun. I'm watching but that. but I sadly just don't do screen you know, don't yeah. do TV time. So one I'm watching thing Dead to Me now, which is amazing. I'm almost finished. Okay, good yeah. to know. So who would you like to hear in the same old podcast? Next. Who would I like to hear? You know, you, I don't know if John Awad has ever done this, but but mm. I'd actually love to hear what he thinks now that he's out of, you know, sort of day-to-day marketing. I bet I can get him. Um, yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. we've got an in for you. So last one, what are you looking forward to this year in your life? Um, I have so many things. But I think from a marketing perspective, I'm actually really excited about how AI and blockchain are reshaping our profession. Mm-hmm. And I'm deep in my, uh, in, in really trying to learn and understand how AI will change what we know about consumers, how we interact with consumers and how we do our work and how blockchain will transform the media landscape, both in terms of efficiency, since so much of our dollars, remember mm-hmm. used to be that 85 cents of our dollars went to work. Now it's about 45 cents. Um, but also things like brand safety and health. And so those would be two big passion points for me from a marketing profession. And as a mom, I just got my kids back from sleepaway camp. So I'm oh. really looking forward to the rest of the summer. Well, we'll let you go home and be with them. So, <laughs> thank Michelle, you so thank you. Thank it was you. delightful, inspiring, Same. amazing. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Michelle Peluso. What I loved about this conversation was the number of mentors Michelle has had in her career. She spoke so fondly and poignantly about the mentors, and they clearly have had an impact on on this incredible leader Michelle has become. The other thing I loved about the conversation was how disciplined she is with her time. She's super focused on where she should be involved and super disciplined about meetings and engagements, and that's one key that makes her an extraordinary CMO. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.